Welcome to Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI-FM. We're broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine campus, and streaming live at KUCI.org. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and today my guest is S.A. Cosby. He's the author of the bestsellers Blacktop Wasteland and Razorblade Tears. We talked via Zoom about so many things, including his writing process, his influences, and movie deals. Toward the end of the interview, there are spoilers, clearly announced, so if you haven't read Razorblade Tears yet, at that point you want to turn off the show. This episode will be podcast later, so subscribe to Writers on Writing on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and you can listen to the remainder of the show when you're ready. It's so good to talk with you. You know, I have to say, um, Razorblade Tears, I love this book so much. I listened to it. Um, I love the reader. And I wondered how you felt about the reader. Did you listen to the audio? You know, it's always such a surreal experience listening to uh, someone else uh, interpret your words. And uh, the, the gentleman who is the reader uh, for Raised by Tears is the same gentleman that read Black Top Wasteland, Adam Lazar White. And I thought he did an incredible job. It's funny because, uh, you know, uh, you write villains in your work if you're inclined to write villains. Uh, and you don't know, for me anyway, you don't know how scary or how intimidating or how intense they are uh, because you're creating them. And so, you, you know, you have a certain amount of, ironically, you have a certain amount of distance from it. And so, when I hear him do the voices of the villains, I got this in Blacktop Wasteland and also in Raised by Tears. It is uh, it's startling how how scary he makes them sound, how in- intimidating he makes them sound. It's my words, but his interpretation on the audio audiobook is incredible. And so uh, I I could, as my mom would say, I was I'm pleased as punch uh, <laughs> with his performance. It's 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 mind blowing in in a way. Yeah, it, it really was. And and speaking of villains, um, I, you must be talking about Grayson when when he comes yeah. on. Grayson, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely. Yeah, Grayson is is uh, totally creepy. I almost need to read the book again in print. I have it here in front of me, uh, but I was so taken with the audio, and sometimes. I don't know if you've had this experience, but because I like to listen to audiobooks as well as read print. And um, but there are readers sometimes where I have to turn it off and I just have to read the print because the, the reader is just not good. <laughs> I don't know. If you- uh, yeah, I think, you know, I, I think everybody uh, it's a beautiful marriage, I guess, when the reader and the words are copacetic when they work well together. Um, it's I think it's interesting when sometimes you listen to an audiobook and say, for instance, it's a book set in, in the South and the reader is from, you know, like from Yonkers. And um, they obviously have a, a, a disconnect with some of the phraseology. And, um, you know, I think there's nothing more, uh, I think there's nothing sadder than a poor Southern accent and so i do i've noticed that sometimes when i, I listen to an audiobook uh i i used to uh have a job where i drove a lot and so i was i was always listening to audiobooks and podcasts and and so uh i think it is different a different immersive experience when you listen to an audiobook versus reading i've done both i've, I've also listened to a book and then went back and read it to mm-hmm. see if there was i was getting a different uh interpretation of it um i think uh, for me personally um, a really good audiobook is equal to reading a book on my own in the experience. Uh, conversely, a, a poor audiobook performance uh, can uh, be salvaged by going to read the book. So the book is always the foundation, I think. Yeah, I agree. And, and I've gone back and forth too, where I'll listen a little bit, then I'll go to the book, especially with like really long books. I'll go to the yeah. print, I'll read a couple of chapters in print, I'll go back and listen. And um, that's kind of an interesting experience as well. Um, I haven't done that with yours. So I'm, I'm going to have to, the second <laughs> time I read it, I'm going to read the print and not listen at all. But, you know, speaking of the Southern um, accent, you know, um, Buddy Lee was most definitely um, uh, Southern, Southern accent. I didn't have that 
the Ike character, he didn't give that to Ike. Yeah, I think, and and that's a an interpretation. Uh, again, I'm I'm always just so blown away and honored when somebody again interprets my work. And so there, like for instance, there are um, movie adaptations in the works for both Razorblade Tears and my previous novel Black Tab Wasteland. I've had the opportunity to. Uh, have a, a, a peek into that process and the things that are being uh, uh, I don't want to say changed but the things that are being interpreted differently than from the book is fascinating to me uh, just like with that it's fascinating that uh, Ike doesn't have as much of an accent as Buddy Lee I think that was I think that's also a technical thing uh, you know you're creating voices and so you have to create this sort of very hard line of demarcation between the two characters and so uh, you know it, it as somebody done like a very small smidgen acting back in high school and college, I do think there there are choices that have to be made to create those those two different voices, so to speak. Um, but the southern accent that he does he does very well. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm a I'm a son of the South. I, I live in southeastern Virginia, and uh, I I can pick it up very very quickly when someone's uh, obviously having difficulty with with that aspect of the performance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was excellent. And, and, and that must be a total thrill to have movie adaptations um, in the works. It's incredibly surreal. It's, it's <laughs> you know, uh, like seven years ago, I was working 40, 50, 60 hours a week as an assistant manager at a hardware store. Uh, and then before that, I was a landscaper. And before that, I was a bouncer. And, uh, you, know, I've, you know, I've just had, you know, a regular working class life. But trying to write, trying to get published, trying to get my work out there. And now, you know, to go from that in the course of, you know, in a matter of five years, less than five years, to having someone, you know, an Oscar-nominated screenwriter is working on a screenplay for one of my books. It's it's almost feels like sometimes it's happening to somebody else, and then sometimes it feels like it's 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 almost too much. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, I don't want to say overwhelming, but it's just a, an embarrassment of riches. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, and so uh, you know, I was raised, uh, I was raised Southern Baptist. And so, you know, it's, it's sort of hard to uh, let go of that um, enforced religious humility. Um, I think it's a good thing. But at the same time, it also sometimes shackles you. You, For me, speaking for myself personally, I speak for anyone else. It's sometimes difficult to fully embrace um, the things that are happening because you feel like maybe if I don't deserve it. To a certain extent and so when you get an email and it says hi this is so and so and i've you know I, here's what i'm doing with your with your book here's some of the notes for the script would you like to read them and i feel like is this real life it's like and so it's definitely uh it definitely is takes some getting used to well i'm curious you know working all the time because you know a lot of a lot of writers work and find time to write but it seems that it's easy to be discouraged in, in trying to find the time when you're exhausted. And I'm curious what kept you going. <laughs> I think partly stubbornness, uh, partly spite. Uh, I, I was lucky that I had, uh, you know, I had family members who were really supportive of my writing. But then I had family members who weren't who were very disdainful of it. I had friends who were friends, frenemies, I guess is the word that you could use that, you know, as long as we were hanging out and, and, and going to, to the bars and stuff, it was fine. But once I started talking about me being a writer, it, it was almost like, oh, well, good luck. I don't think it's going to happen, but the best of luck to you. I mean, but I mean, in, in a more serious note, I think I just love writing so much. I, I love the act of writing. I love coming up with ideas. I love creating a, a sentence. I love, I love that good, that great moment in a story where, you know, there's a, 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 a dialogue and, and, and a back and forth and somebody comes up with a really pithy line. I just love all of it. And so it wasn't, it wasn't, I don't want to say it wasn't difficult, but it, it was easier for me to come home after working 50 hours, you know, in a retail environment and getting yelled at because, you know, we don't make a lamp that we made back in 1978. And, um, <laughs> sit down and, and kind of immerse myself in these worlds that I created. It was sort of my refuge. And so, uh, you know, I think you find time for the things that are important to you. And writing was very important to me. And so uh, 
that doesn't mean that it was easy at all. You know, and there were many times where I was on my lunch break and trying to, you know, squeeze in a paragraph here or finish a chapter there or finish a short story. Um, you know, there were times where I was late to work, you know, but I think I had subconsciously created a hierarchy in my mind that, you know, my job is my job and I need my job to survive to pay bills, but writing is my calling. And so if I was 15 minutes late back from lunch, I didn't really sweat it because I felt like the writing was the more important aspect of my life. And luckily it came to fruition. <laughs> I was right. <laughs> right. You were right. Well, you know, how far back was this? I mean, when did you know that this, oh, this was your path? Uh, my, my, the, the urban legend in my family that was, uh, <laughs> popularized by my by my uh my, my my late mother was that I was reading when I was four and when I was five I was making up stories. I don't believe that. <laughs> but <that's, laughs> but if, if it, I think that's you know I think that's a, a mother who was very uh you know very proud of her precocious child. But I think seriously I was around 12 or 13 where I really felt the bug of wanting to tell my own story. And uh you know we were uh you know, we uh, we had very dire economic circumstances in my family. My mother and father separated when I was young. Um, my mother, unfortunately, um, was disabled um, by a medical condition. And so we didn't have a lot of money. So I didn't have a typewriter. And so I have horrible handwriting. Even today, my handwriting is terrible. It looks like hieroglyphics. And um, <laughs> so I would print these stories in note on notebook paper and I, it was painstaking because I wanted people to be able to read it. I want, and, and at, at that age, you're just handing it to your friends, you know, your buddies, uh, your, your schoolmates. Um, and what ended up happening was one of these stories that I had written got handed around the class and, and people were reading instead of doing their work. And the teacher took the story and she read it. And then she told me to stay after class. And she was like, this is really good. This is remarkable. And that was the, First time I felt like, wow, I'm, I'm kind of good at this. And then later on in uh, my 11th, my junior year of high school, um, my English teacher, uh, Mr. Jeff Bone, um, he pulled me aside again in a different situation. I had written an essay and he was just really impressed with it. And he said, you know, you really have a talent for this. You have a unique voice and, and voice is something that you can't teach. And uh, he gave me uh two really important books in my writing career. He gave me E.B. Strunk and uh, Strunk and White's uh, Elements of Style. Mm -hmm. And he gave me the collective works, the collective works of Samuel Beckett. Mm -hmm. And he said, I think you'll get, you, you need the first one. And I think you'll really get the second one. And that wasn't a book that was, either one of those books were on our high school syllabus. And, and uh, you know, both of those books really had a great influence on me. But more important than that, he was the first adult outside of my mom uh, who really, emphasize or really impressed upon me that writing could be a career that I could do this for a living and I'm so happy uh that he is uh is is still with us and he's still around and I I actually uh thanked him in my first book because he was such an incredible influence on me but it took a long time for me to get published a very long time like what's a long time what was uh, that? let's see I I sent up my first actual story for consideration when I was 19. This was back when you still had to send a self-addressed stamp envelope. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get my first story. I didn't get my first actual acceptance uh, until I was 31. So over over 10 years. Um, and uh, and that was for a short story. For a magazine that didn't pay, they gave you <laughs> copies. Um, <laughs> and yeah. so, but that first publication was just like, it's, you know, it's almost like that scene. <laughs> it's almost like that scene in Dumb and Dumber. That first, that first uh, publication acceptance. It was like, so you're saying there's a chance, and I just, <laughs> I, I just was like, all right, <laughs> here we go. I, I felt like I'm on my way, and it was a long time before the next acceptance. It was another, oh gosh, it was another four years before I actually got paid for a story. Um, but that first paid acceptance really set me on my path. Um, I, cause when I first started writing, I was writing a lot of, I wanted to be like the next Stephen King. So I was writing a lot of horror, a lot of sci-fi and I wasn't really connecting with people. And, um, what, what happened was, uh, back in like 20, oh, that was 2012, 11, somewhere in there, a friend of mine, and I tell the story all the time. And I swear to God, it's a true story. 
But I had a friend who was a ballet dancer and she went to New York City and she did a performance. And after her performance, she uh, her troupe went to this bar. And the, the guy who was bartending was a guy named Todd Robinson. And he was the editor and publisher of a quarterly crime magazine called Thug Lit. Uh, was, was it published really hard boiled crime? Yeah, sure. And she met she met she mentioned him. She mentioned me to him, and then he told her, "Well, here's my email. Tell him to send me a story. I, you know, I'm always looking for new writers." And I sent him a story, and it got published, and he paid because Todd was still is all about paying writers. And it was like something clicked into place for me that crime writing was the niche or the niche that I was looking for. And it and, and things, you know, after. 15 years of getting rejected, things happened really quickly after I first got published in Thuglet. I got nominated for uh, the Best American Mission Short Stories. Uh, I got another nomination. I won the Anthony Award uh, for Best Mystery Short Story. And uh, very shortly after that, I, I got a publishing contract. So, you know, it was a 15-year a, a overnight success. That's not too bad, though. You know, I mean, actually, yeah. you know, 15 years is kind of a good amount of time, isn't it? Between, you know, first um, placing something and then actually getting paid and and winning awards. I mean, I think that's pretty good. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are writers, you know, that I love who, who you know, 20, 25 years. You could talk about, you know, someone like Kafka, who really wasn't celebrated in his lifetime at all or how you know Bukowski was really late in life before anybody started uh, really acknowledging him mm-hmm. as a writer or, or, or Raymond Carver who had fits and you know spurts of success here and there. Um, so yeah, it's not, you know, there were, there were writers who suffered way more, uh, you know, the, the tragic story of uh, John Kennedy O'Toole, the writer of mm-hmm. a Confederacy of Dunces who didn't see it published in his lifetime. So, uh, you know, everybody's story is their story and everybody's story is, is personal. And for me, I, th- I, I don't think of it as like, you know, rejection is terrible. I mean, I don't care what anybody says. Rejection is awful. But I just, I was just stubborn. You know, I just felt like this is what I'm supposed to do. This is the one thing that makes me, this is the one thing when I do it, I feel like I know what I'm doing. I feel like I'm supposed to be doing it. And I just, it had been 25 years. I would just kept going. I, I just, there was something in me that felt like this is, this is the thing. You know, there's this, this is the thing that hits you. And, and it's just like when I wrote, I, I, and I say this and I, I mean, and, and I hope people don't take it that I sound disingenuous, but when I wrote Blacktop Wasteland, I felt like this voice was whispering in my ear, this is the one that like this. And, and this was before I had an agent. I didn't have an agent when I wrote it. I didn't have an agent. I I'd actually had an agent and it, it, I, our relationship ended because uh, I could, couldn't sell my first book. But I think when, I think you just know, you know that this is the one. And it doesn't mean that I knew it was going to be a huge success and get in the New York Times or anything like that. But I knew this was as good as I could write. This is, this is the pinnacle of what I can do, what my skill level will let me do. And, and, and when you know that, I think you can sleep at night, regardless of what happens to the work, because you know you did the best you could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um well, you know, I want to talk a little bit about Razorblade Tears. And I, I want to say one thing I loved about it was that it's a crime novel, but there aren't uh, procedural details in it. You know, like in so many crime novels, you know, we have the cop and all the things the cop has to go through. And you have the detectives and you have the cops, but they play such a minor role. And I love that. And I wonder, I mean, was that your intention from the start? Oh yeah, I, I wanted, I wanted the police to sort of be a, a very uh, sort of a haphazard Greek chorus. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would be interjected every now and then to just maintain the reality of the situation that there is a police investigation that you know, and also the police play a role, a a, a somewhat tertiary antagonistic role here where. You know, they are a extra added danger for the main characters. In addition to the people that they're hunting, who in turn start hunting them, you still have to worry about the police locking you up because you know you're you know out here being a vigilante. Um, and so that was definitely intentional. 
uh, in this particular instance for this particular book, man, the book I'm working on now is totally opposite. It's about mm-hmm. a small town, uh, a black small town sheriff who has to serve, solve a, uh, a series of murders while at the same time uh, dealing with some far right extremists in his town. And so uh, that's totally opposite. But for Razor Blade Tears, the police are really much in the background because this is really the story of the two main characters, Ike and Buddy Lee, these two, you know, hardened men who are, you know, emotionally distant, but also emotionally shattered. And it's really their story of redemption and growth and 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 how we uh how we deal with our our grief and our guilt. Um and so the police are there just to remind the reader that, you know, hey, you know, while they're on this bloody path of revenge, there's also a possibility they may end up in jail because, you know, mm-hmm. what's going on. And so yeah, they definitely were a, a sort of secondary characters to just kind of um keep stirring the pot, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned um, you you just mentioned a, a little bit on on theme, and and I don't know if you write to theme or if you let your readers decide what themes are in the book. But there were so many in this one. There's racism, class, betrayal, secrets, homophobia, grief. I mean, we could go on and and add to that list. And is that something you're thinking of? Was that something you were thinking of when you were writing the book? Or is that, again, is that something you let your readers um, come to? Um, I definitely write toward a theme. Um, you know, I, I write toward the idea, certain ideas that I have uh, that I want to talk about. Um, you know, uh, with Razor Blade Tears, definitely, you know, the ideas of Greek, grief and redemption were paramount. Uh, but at the same time, I'm very aware as a reader myself that, you know, nobody wants a, um, you know, a 300 page sermon. And so you have to add, add details to create an ingratiating interest and story. Um, but I always write to theme. I always have larger themes that I'm using, you know, crime fiction to talk about. You know, as you said, racism and class and homophobia and prejudice and intolerance and raised by tears or tragic and toxic masculinity and, and generational trauma in a uh, black top wasteland, or even like in my first book uh, 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 on the independent publisher, a book called Darkest Prayer. And that's also talking about uh, grief, but also about uh, guilt and, and the, the, the specter of our consciences and, you know, uh, what can we live with and what can we, uh, co- how do we compartmentalize things? Uh, so I'm always right to, to a theme, but I'm also very, very aware that I want my books to be exciting and interesting. Um, I don't know if fun is the right word because a lot of people die in my books. So I don't know if I could call them fun, but I, I want to be, I definitely want the story to be intriguing and interesting. Hmm. Yeah, well, uh, certainly Razorblade Tears begins right in the middle of things. And it had me thinking as I was ris- listening, actually, I was going to say reading. Um, I guess listening is reading, right? I mean, you're listening. Yeah, I think so. You're being told a story, so you're reading. Um, Mm -hmm. But you get in and out of chapters um, kind of at the perfect time. I mean, you you don't spend a lot of time getting in. You don't spend a lot of time getting out. And the book begins um, with just a grabber, you know, somebody's at the door. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, Ike Ike learns of... um, you know, of his son's death. I mean, it's, um, talk about beginning the book and was this always, was this always the beginning? Um, no, uh, actually went through the beginning, went through a couple drafts. Uh, I initially begin, I wanted to begin the book at the funeral, uh, and, and just drop you right into it. But I went back and rewrote it because I, what I really wanted to do when I was trying to do with that initially opening was I wanted to draw the reader in to um, the character. Like, Ike is one of the main characters. I think, you know, he and Buddy Lee shared top billing if this was a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted the I wanted the reader, I wanted to give the reader a, a sense of what Ike has lost. You know, not just the fact that his son has been murdered, a son that he wasn't very close to, but he's lost the opportunity to repair that relationship. And I I think starting it at a funeral doesn't really give you that insight. And so I went back and I rewrote it, you know, the idea of a knock at the door, you know, anybody who is um, 
you know, anyone can relate to that. That, you know, knocking the door can be a wonderful thing. It can be somebody dropping off, you know, your latest Amazon package, or knocking the door can be the beginning of your journey into tragedy. And uh, I, 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 so when I did that, I really wanted to draw the reader in to, to understand, you know, here's this man who's living his life, you know, going on. He's doing what a lot of us do. You think you have time to fix things. You think you have enough time, but you don't, you know. And so I really wanted to metaphorically slap the reader in the face. Like, no, look here. You don't have time. Just like I thought you do not have time. And and so I thought that was a more arresting way to start the book. Um, beginnings, people talk about endings being hard, but I think beginnings are hard because beginnings of books set the tone and you have to really nail that. And, and I, I take a lot of uh, time trying to make sure I've got the right beginning. I'm working on something now where I, I skipped the first chapter and I went to the second one. I was like, I'll come back to that. because <laughs> I just, I, there's a certain, <laughs> there's a certain way I want things to sound in my head if that makes sense mm -hmm. and i don't feel like the book is right until it sounds right in my head and so i'm definitely um i'm definitely cognizant of that um i think you know endings are hard but i think beginnings are harder in my opinion um but yeah i definitely wanted to like i said metaphorically you know throw a glass of cold water on the reader and like no look at this because if you think if you're thinking the way ike is thinking you're wrong and so uh that was my kind of my inspiration for that yeah, and beginnings, there, there's so many books, right? And what do we choose to spend time with? Um, I, I know people that will give books, you know, 50 pages or 100 pages. I'm like, no, how about like one page? I'll give a book <laughs> one page. And if I'm not into sometimes two or three. But yeah, I think it's so important. I mean, uh, endings leave you leave the reader either wanting to read the writer's next book or not but beginnings make you read it or put it aside for something else i mean yeah and my background is uh short stories and so i learned early on with short stories you have to grab people immediately you don't mm -hmm. have time with a short story to to play out a long you know winding road of, of esoteric comments you got to grab people here's a story here's what's going on come with me Right. And uh, and so I, I kind of translated it over to my uh, my my novels. Uh, I sound I feel, I feel so pretentious. My novels, but <laughs> you know my longer my longer writing. Uh, I think that's important. Uh, I, I'm more generous. I'll give a book. I'll give a book five pages if I'm not feeling it in the first five pages. Sometimes I'll come back to it. I'm like, well, let me put it down, and maybe I'm wrong. Very rarely have I engaged with a book after that. Um, but usually the best books, the books that I really like, like I said, they get you in the first five pages. Yeah. Here's the setup. Here's what's happening, you know, and let's go. And that doesn't necessarily have to be a crime novel. Like I, I read every, I, I read multiple genres. And so uh, like, for instance, if I, I remember reading years ago, um, A Thousand Acres uh, mm -hmm. by Jane Smiley. Sure. And, and that's a, a story that grabs you in the first chapter. You're like, what is going on in Nebraska? Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, and so, um, and so or, or the old classics, you know, any of the old, like, the, you know, a lot of the Hemingway stuff, um, you know, uh, the Great Gatsby, uh, Light in August, which is one of my favorite books by William Faulkner. Um, books that just, here, here's the situation, and, 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 and here we go. And so uh, I try to replicate that with my own work, you know, and sometimes I'll succeed, sometimes I don't. <laughs> Yeah, but the first five pages, okay, maybe I'll give it five pages too, because you were thinking <laughs> of um, Noah Lukeman's book, The First Five Pages. I don't know if you've seen that, um, Noah Lukeman's an agent, and he talks about how important the first five pages are for so many different reasons, um, mm -hmm. you know, representing the writer, as well as, you know, is this a professional or not in terms of just format and how it looks mm -hmm. apart from the story. So, yeah, the beginnings are so important. But, you know, a few minutes ago, you talked about, you said Buddy Lee and Ike shared top billing. And I wanted to ask you about that because they are so fully developed. And I wonder how you go about creating character. Do you do full biographies? And do you do that for side characters as well? Talk a little bit about creating the characters of Buddy Lee and Ike. When, when I start writing a book, uh, I write very long, detailed synopsis. I don't call them outlines because they're not really outlines. They're, they're, it's me telling myself the story. Because if I'm not interested in the story, I don't think the reader will be. 
And in and part of that process is creating, like you said, biographies for the main characters, detailed biographies. 98% of that stuff never makes it in the book. That's that's for me. But it gives me a background, it gives me uh, a, 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 re, a point of reference for the characters when I start writing them in full in the book. Um, you know, I know certain things about characters that I can use to flesh them out. Uh, with Ike and Buddy Lee, I did that, you know, I, there's a whole biography of Ike before we meet him. How did he get involved with gang life? You know, what happened to his parents? Why did his grandparents raise him? With Buddy Lee, it's like, how did he deal with having multiple half brothers and sisters? You know, what was his father like? Was he in and out of his life? You know, you know, and what happened to his mother and, and how she was religious, but his father seemed to be an outlaw and how that translated to his life. And so all of that is background fodder for me when I write the book. And like I said, again, 98% of that is never explained in the book or it's just passing reference. I love that in, in fiction, though. I love when someone makes a passing reference to something and they just leave it there. You know, if you want to use like... Um, uh, like the Kessel Run in Star Wars, when they when Han Solo says, "You know, I made the Kessel Run in five parsecs," you know, I'm one of those people. I don't never need. I don't ever need to see that. I just like the 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 urban legendness of that um, of of what happened there. Uh, you know, when when people encounter uh, Ike that knew him in the past and they call him Riot, um, there's there's weight, there's gravitas to that name. We don't have to know everything that he did mm -hmm. as Riot. We just have to know that he was not someone to be trifled with, um, you know. And so I, I think that goes a long way to creating multifaceted, complex, deep characters um, that are much more than just, you know, uh, avatars uh, that get the story going. They're, they're people. They're people mm -hmm. you care about, you know. And that I think that is uh, is is paramount uh, when it comes to writing. Did you have fun creating Buddy Lee? Because he, like, yeah. he felt like a fun character. <laughs> but I, I had fun with both of them because, you know, Buddy Lee gets the best one-liners yeah. and Ike gets the best threats. Ike's threats are <laughs> terrifying. And so, but Buddy Lee has the funny one-liners. And so I thought they played well off of each other. I like those characters. You know, I, I, I've, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I'm, I'm you know, a, a son of the South. You know, Virginia is my heart and my home. I knew and grew up with a lot of Buddy Lees and a lot of Ikes. I knew guys like that growing up. I knew maybe not murderers because I can buddy Lee had both in prison, but I knew guys who had certain mentalities who who use like with Buddy Lee, he uses his humor as a as a defense mechanism. You know, that's the way he deals with the world. Um, he keeps people at arm arm's length with his humor. Um, you know, Ike is very a, a, a guy who's very aware of the power of language. He's aware of the power of threats of of speaking in a certain way. You know, he's a man that if he tells you something. You know, you are uh, pretty obliged to listen. And so uh, both of them were fun to create and, and fun to give their, uh, you know, their moments in the sun, so to speak. Um, I think ultimately both of them are tragic characters, um, I think. But the most fun thing I enjoyed the most was building a relationship between them. You know, they go from somewhat hostile in the beginning of the book to brothers in arms by the end. And I thought, and their conversations that they had while, you know, of course I'm, I'm, you know, saying some things directly to the reader through these conversations, but I'm also trying to create a camaraderie between these two men. And I felt like that did work. I felt like that did come through um, by the end. You know, there's a seat, there's a line I have at the end where Buddy Lee says something funny and Ike is, is laughing in spite of himself. And I think, you know, that's the moment where they become friends, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and I think that, helps drive the story and makes people care about ultimately the ending and where these characters end up. Hmm. What about names? Because um, the names seem significant. And I, I imagine, especially with the amount of work you put into doing character biographies that you, you are very um, conscious and very deliberate in choosing names for your characters. You know, there's mm -hmm. Gatsby as well, which I found mm -hmm. interesting. Uh, can you can you talk about choosing names? Yeah, I think names have power. Uh, not to get too metaphysical about it, but I think names definitely have power. Um, you know, like for instance, uh, in my first, my previous book, I named a, a black character Beauregard because Beauregard is typically 
thought of as a stereotypical shorthand for a white Southerner of a certain political disposition. And I wanted to give that name to a black character because I was actually, you know, I, I was actually saying, no, here, look, there are black people in the South and this is part of their story. With Ike and Buddy Lee, those names are definitely, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 significant. Um, you know, there's the biblical connotation of Isaac uh, and, you know, and, and, and uh, Abraham. Uh, you know, and, and Abraham was asked to uh, sacrifice Isaac, um, you know, and, and in the book, Ike, you know, kind of carries that on with his son. He sacrifices his son on the altar of his intolerance. He doesn't mm-hmm. have it in him to talk to his son. So that was definitely, you know, something I did on purpose. Uh, with Buddy Lee, I get, you know, if, if you read the book, his actual name is William, but I gave him the name Buddy Lee because I wanted to tap into that, again, that Southern uh, that that southern mythos, that southern identity of you know his character named Buddy Lee or Jim Bob, um, and I wanted to put the reader into a certain mindset with this character, but it then kind of just pulled the rug out from under him a little bit because Buddy Lee is a little more introspective than you think, and he's a little more he's definitely way smarter than people than people give him credit for, and so I wanted to kind of you know take that traditional stereotypical southern character name and put it on a character that is a little more complex than, than usual. With the um, Gatsby, uh, who is a, a character that is involved in the, uh, in the, in the plot, uh, his, his first name and his last name are real significant. Gatsby obviously is named after the great Gatsby. And I wanted that character to be someone who is you know, very concerned about status and position uh, along with his son. And Culpepper is, if anybody's listening who's from Virginia, uh, Culpepper County, uh, is a county where there are a lot of there are a lot of folks who think highly of themselves. I'll leave it there. <laughs> and so <laughs> um, I wanted to use that. There's a you know Virginia has this certain sort of uh, sort of class delineation, uh, uh, and mm-hmm. I, I, that's a little wink and a nudge. I guess I guess the kids would call it an Easter egg. That's a little wink and a nudge to that in 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 the story. But yeah, I think names have a lot of power. I think names. Um, give characters uh, a certain cachet in the reader's mind, um, you know? Um, and so I do, I agonize over names. I think I agonize over names more than I agonize over anything else. Because really? if the character, if the, yeah, if the name doesn't fit, uh, it doesn't work. Like for instance, the character of Grayson, he had another name in the first draft and it just bugged me all through the first draft. I came up with it, I thought it would work, but every time I saw it on a page, I'm like, this isn't working. What was this it? Oh, his name originally was his name originally was Baron because I wanted to give him this sort of I wanted to create in the reader's mind this idea of you know this this you know like Baron von Bismarck you know like Otto Bismarck this very hard very determined character but for me personally after a while I felt like I don't want to give him that much credit I don't want to give him this sort of <laughs> this sort of military bearing and so I came up with Grayson. Because again, this is sort of a part of my process. I wanted him to be sort of this character that is, in his mind, he sees himself as a a a a, a bad, a tough, bad man. He's a man not to be messed with. But really, he sort of lives in that nebulous gray area. Mm-hmm. He's not nearly as bad as he thinks he is, and he 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 he, he and he constantly underestimates Ike and Buddy Lee. And so I wanted to give him that. I changed his name, and it worked. It made me more comfortable. I couldn't sleep at night with that name. I was like, I would get up at three o'clock in the morning and pull up the computer. I'm like, I got to give him another name. <laughs> and so <laughs> my poor editor goes through this with me all the time. <laughs> but yeah, names definitely have power. Yeah, Grayson nails it. I thought that that was perfect for him. Really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now I'm curious about your name because your name is Sean. And you go by S.A. Cosby. And usually you see women writers do this so that they get more of the male readers interested because, you know, will male readers read women? Well, what if you just change the first name and give them initials? Um, why do you do it? <laughs> so <laughs> my my name is, my, my whole name is Sean Andre Cosby. And I thought, I've always thought Sean Cosby was a boring name. You know, my mom, you know, God rest her soul. She loved the name. I'm actually, <laughs> this is sort of a funny anecdote. I'm actually named after an actor and a uh, TV commercial. Because when I was a kid, my mom loved, loved, loved Sean Connery. 
And she uh-huh. loved the name Andre because she used to see it. There used to be a champagne in, when you could still advertise alcohol on TV. There used to be a name, uh, uh, a champagne named Andre. Yes. Uh, that she just loved the name. She was in love with that name. It was Andre and Asti Spumante and all these guys. And so she loved the name Andre and she loved Sean Connery, but she didn't like the spelling. So she changed the spelling. But ever since I was a little kid, she would tell me, you know, you named after Sean Connery. You know, you, you, <laughs> I would say this, it's, you feel free to cut this out, but it's so funny. My mom would always tell us when she would talk about Sean Connery, you know, my mom was African-American. She was like, Sean Connery, that is a sexy white man. My God. And, you know, <laughs> as a kid, you're like, I don't need to know this in my life. Thank you. But anyway, getting back to the naming, I just thought Sean was boring. And so when I looked at my initials, I saw an essay. It's like an essay, like a written essay. That sort right. of has an interesting spin on it. Um, and so I, you know, long story short, I thought it was cool. I thought it sounded cool. And uh, after I started writing and started getting a little bit of notice, um, it kind of stuck. I, you know, I wouldn't change it. I think it does add a uniqueness to myself, and uh, I still think that the the hum the 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 homophone of essay and essay is is interesting. It's kind of different. Uh, but you know, my mama name is Sean, so people call me Sean in real life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, there. I like I like both of them, but yeah, I can see why you would do that. I can see why you would do it, and also initials do add a certain mystery, right, to the mm-hmm. writer. It's yeah. like, who is that in there? You yeah, know? It's like J.D. Salinger. I mean, I'm not comparing myself to J.D. Salinger, but there is a certain mystery to that. There's a certain, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, interest that can be gleaned from just those, those two letters. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, but, you know, and, and names, again, when, when I'm reading uh, Buddy Lee, I'm, and I, figured I didn't look it up and I didn't know that there was a movie deal when I was uh, reading the book, but I figured there would be because it's such an excellent story and visual and just everything about it lends itself to being a film. But I was thinking of Billy Bob Thornton. I'm like, well, he could be, he could be Buddy Lee and Idris Elba would be Ike. And I'm, I'm thinking of these actors as I'm listening to the book and I, and I wonder if you think that way when you're writing. Are you picturing who might play it if it were a film? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, uh, when I was writing it, um, <laughs> I had one of those characters, the actors that you mentioned was in my mind. I, when I was writing it, I could see definitely Idris Elba as, as Ike. I, mm-hmm. I definitely had that in my head. Um, but it's funny. I always imagined Buddy Lee as uh, Dallas Buyers Club era Matthew McConaughey. Mm. I, I could, you know, I could see it, maybe with a little more weight on him, but a rugged, you know, I wanted, because I wanted Buddy Lee, I wanted people to take from the descriptions I gave that he is a pretty handsome guy going to see. You know, you can still see that, you know, the twinkle around his eyes, but mm-hmm. I wanted people to get that. And I thought, I thought, you know, it, when my, in my mind, I was like, man, who could do that? Like, you, you could see Matthew McConaughey letting his hair grow long and letting the gray show, but, you know, uh, giving himself a, 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 you know, a rough around the edges look. I could definitely, and I thought the visual in my mind of Idris Elba and Matthew McConaughey together uh, in the action scenes and, and you know, in, in, in the later scenes, I just thought that really worked. And I don't know what they're going to do on the studio level. But it would be pretty cool if, if they were able to get them to do it. Yeah, wouldn't it? It would be totally <laughs> yeah. cool. Huh. We'll have to, you know, put mojo that way. And uh, <laughs> yeah, that would be totally cool. You know, getting back to a while back, um, I mentioned how your alacrity with getting in and out of scenes. And can you talk about that? I, I imagine that's something you think about as you're writing. And I don't know if if in the rewrite you're trimming to make that happen more or or what you do, what your technique is to make this work. Um, for me, uh, my, like my first, well, actually, well, let me say this one. My first actual full-length crime novel was much slower paced because it was a more traditional, straightforward, straight, straight-ahead mystery. It was about an uh, unlicensed PI who works out of a, you know, his day job is he works at a funeral home. His night job is he takes these unlicensed uh, jobs in a small southern town. And so it was, it's much more slower paced because I wanted to 
as you said, have traditional mystery tropes. I wanted him to accumulate clues, have suspects, chase down red herrings, have confrontations, so on and so forth. But when I started, when I when I started raising my tears, I knew that on the surface it had the structure of a mystery, but it's really a thriller. We we learned about halfway through who is doing it, we, you know, who's behind the scenes pulling the strings. Um, and so I, I wanted the pacing of the book to match the, the intensity of the story. And what I mean by that is, you know, this is a story about two men who the only way they know to express their grief is through violence. And so this, this story, the, the pacing needs to hum, it needs to move. And so um, I wanted, like you said, the chapters, I wanted to get in and out fairly quickly uh, there are chapters that are longer because I do try to slow the pace down every seven or eight chapters, because what I want to do is give them the reader a moment to breathe, uh, have a conference conversation between Ike and Buddy Lee, and then let's put our foot on the gas again. Um, and, and that's something I kind of try to do naturally. But I also read a book, um, uh, a book about writing or actually a book about screenplays uh, called Story by Robert McKee. And oh, he yeah. Really he has a really great uh, line in there where he says, when you begin a scene, and then if you, you know, for me, I thought, well, scenes are just like chapters. You should have, if the scene begins with a positive aspect, it should end with a negative aspect. And if it begins with a negative aspect, it should end with a positive aspect. If you should never have a chapter or scene where nothing changes, where nothing happens. And that is, was a, for me personally, that was an incredible piece of advice. And I, I've stuck by that ever since. And so it does help to push the story along. Now, the, the project that I'm working on now um, is going to be closer to my first book because it's another actual traditional murder mystery. Um, so it's going to be much slower pace. Uh, and so, you know, it's funny, as a writer, you you always are only as good as your last project. And mm -hmm. when I wrote Blacktop Wasteland, I didn't know if I could replicate that same intensity with another book. And then I've written Raised by Tears. I'm sort of concerned, you know, will readers take a book that's a little slower pace? Will they take a book that's a little more languid, a little more Southern in its mm -hmm. DNA? Um, and you don't know. I mean, all I can do is write it and write it as, as again, like I said, that little voice that says, this is it. You know, you write it as well as you can. And and uh, hopefully the the people, you know, you you play the tune, you hope people will come in to, to the dance. So how how much are you thinking of the reader when you're writing? Are you thinking of the reader at all? Um, yeah, but not as a not as the primary audience. For me, when I'm writing, my main concern, my first concern is, is this story interesting? And that doesn't mean, is it interesting to the reader? It's got to be interesting to me. Like, is this story something I want to devote, you know, nine months, a year of my life to? Um, and so once I get that squared away, I think about the reader here and there, you know, of course, I'm, you know, I don't want to have a plot hole in the middle of the book. I don't want to have characters behaving in ways that aren't realistic, or aren't natural, or aren't, con you know, uh, contextually the same as the character has been des described. Um, but again, the reader is sort of, uh, sort of in the background of what I'm trying to do. The story is the first thing. The story is the thing. The story has to make sense. The story has to move. The story has to be interesting. It has to be compelling, intriguing. Um, it For me personally, it has to say something. Now, not all writing has to say anything. You know, story can just be a story. But for me, I, am I saying the things I want to say in a way that's not preachy? I think that's also important. But, at, you know, I don't want to say the reader is at the bottom of the list, but toward the end of the list, there is the idea, okay, now the reader's going to like this. Like when I wrote Raised by Tears, I know because of the theme that it, it talks about, there's a certain segment of readers that are not going to like it initially because of what it talks about. You know, I've gotten the emails where people call me a social justice warrior. I've gotten the emails where people say that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm promoting the gay agenda, which I'm like, okay, I don't know what that is, but whatever. Uh, I've, gotten, I've gotten emails from people where you know, I love Black Tie Wasteland. I, I wish you had done that again. I hate this book. And I knew that. I knew when I sat down to write it, there was going to be a certain contingent of the readership that was going to feel that way. And I, I, I don't care because I felt like what I wanted to talk about in the story I was trying to tell was a story that needed to be told. Um, you know, that doesn't mean I'm, this, I'm trying to be some kind of savior. I just felt like for me, I had this story inside of me and I had to tell it. And I knew going in there, some people, like with the story I'm working on now, I know there are going to be some people because it 
the main character is a police officer, he's a sheriff, there are going to be people that are like automatically can be turned off by that because, you know, obviously, you know, the, the climate and, you know, the, the horrific things that we've seen some police officers do, I totally understand that. But again, I have a story inside of me that I have to tell. You know, I think it was um, I think it was uh, David Cronenberg, the director, that said, you know, you know, people talk about writing or creating like it's this beautiful thing. He said it's terrifying because there's <laughs> nothing worse than, you know, he said his story ideas are like monsters that are clawing the way out, out, out of him. I don't think that. But I do think if you have a story, I think it's Maya Angelou that said if you have a story inside you, there's no bigger tragedy than not being able to tell it. I'm paraphrasing but. You know, and I think that's true. I think that's true. I think, you know, the moment you sit, I've, I've sat down and started to write something and the moment you stop and think, oh man, I wonder if people will like this. I wonder if this is going to, you know, ruffle some feather. I hope I don't upset anybody with, then you're lost. You've lost. Don't even, you know, don't even continue writing it because you've already lost the theme. You know, I, I think writing is, there's a certain part of writing that is a, a charge. It is a responsibility, you know, and I think your responsibility ultimately is to tell the truth. We make up stories. We tell lies to find the truth um, and not to be too uh, corny. I take that very seriously. Mm, yeah. I love that. Yeah. There's only so much you can care about in terms of response, right? I mean, you write what mm-hmm. you have to write and and hopefully most of the response to it will be, good and positive and mm-hmm. whatever. I mean, yeah. you know, otherwise I, I suppose if you want to be a commercial writer and write what you think is selling, I, I guess you can do, I guess people do that. Right. I mean, Oh, there are people that do that to a, you know, and they have a algorithm and a formula mm-hmm. to it that it works every time. Um, and I don't, I don't, uh, I don't want to, I, I don't stand on my moral high horse you know, uh, and be like, well, that's not true. You know, write what you want. I mean, whatever makes you comfortable, you know, for me personally, though, that doesn't work for me. Uh, I'll tell you a really quick antidote. Uh, I used to lead, and this is before I got published. I just liked writing and talking about writing so much. Uh, at my local uh, uh, library, I used to lead a, uh, um, like a writer's group, you know, a little informal. It wasn't nothing that mm-hmm. the library was promoting. It was just a couple of friends that got together and we go to the library and we talk about writing. And there was a person that joined our group one time and, uh, it was, and and she was basically a, a, a person. She wanted somebody to tell her how to write a bestseller. You know, well, what do I do? What you know? What? And I was like, hey, you know, I, I don't. And all of us, you know, it wasn't just me. It was like, well, I don't think anybody knows. You know, that's that's <laughs> that's the horrible secret. You know, no one knows. Oh God, was it Somerset Mom that said that there are three rules of writing and nobody knows them? Um, <laughs> and so, um, you know, and this person was very adamant about it. You know that. I want to know how to write a bestseller. And I remember the funniest thing at the time, I think I was like, I'm 48 now. I think I was 40 or maybe I was 39, but this person was a lot younger. And they said, you know, I don't want to wait till I'm 40 to be a successful writer. I'll excuse (laughs) you. Um, But I I think that is definitely a mentality that some people have. And I don't, I don't disparage that. You know, I, 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 I'm not, again, I'm not someone that's sitting up here like, you know, Oh, I write and this is art. You know, I I don't think that's, (laughs) You know, I think that's obnoxious as well. Um, but I do think if that's what you want to do, then you are putting yourself in a certain box. And but you know, some people, you know, they sleep on a bed of money and they don't worry about the box. Um, I, uh, I, I, I don't ascribe to that. You know, I'm very fortunate that my writing has allowed me to. You know, I write full time now. You know, and I've been very, you know, you know, writing has has given me incredible things that I, I never thought I would I would get, you know, and, you know, and, and part of it is, you know, of course, the artistic satisfaction. Then I come from, like I said, I came from a poor background. So let's be real. It, it you know, I've been compensated in ways that are beyond my wildest dreams. I don't think that makes me any less of a writer. I, you know, I don't think that makes me a sellout. You know, I grew up, you know, I was, I grew, I, I didn't have indoor plumbing until I was 16 years old, you know, and so writing as a, Writing was never something I thought of as financial security. In fact, it was something I struggled with at times because I felt like, you know, I'm doing this writing thing, but I really should get a good job. I really should have something to fall back on. And so the fact that writing has allowed me to have a, make a living is an incredible honor. You know, my mom passed away in March and she lived long enough. Excuse me. Um, she lived long enough to see my writing 
bear fruit, not just financially, but artistically and emotionally. And I, I, you know, I, I can never repay the art of writing for that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's excellent. That's excellent. Wow. Well, you know, we have a few minutes left and, and I do want to, uh, anybody who hasn't read the book, you might want to leave now because I really have to ask <laughs> Don a question about the ending here. So here's a, a little notice that this is a spoiler alert and we just have a few minutes left. So you're not going to, you know, all you're going to really miss is the spoiler. And, and so here we go. <laughs> because right. I have to ask you, I have to ask you. So the climax of the book has to do with a fertilizer bomb which is brilliant. And of course, when this happens, I'm thinking back to the beginning where we learned that Ike has a landscaping business. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder how you did that. I mean, did you know what the climax, what you wanted the climax of the book to be? And so he had to have a landscaping business or did that just come out of, well, what could happen? He made him a landscaper. Let's see, what can, what can we do with that? it's the chicken and the egg the landscaping came first the bomb was secondary i made him a landscaper because i wanted him to have a business but i wanted it to be a working class business and i wanted it to be some well i, I used to do landscaping so i i have a i have a background in it i knew some things and there were certain you know and i think also i wanted him to have a connection to the to the earth to the soil, to, to nature, because he had been, he had done time in prison. And, you know, I, I used to do, uh, I had a friend that did a, I helped him with a prison outreach program. And one of the things, you know, guys always said in there, you know, it's like, it's nothing like walking across, you know, barefoot across the, the, the mm. grass or the, or the dirt, being out in nature, see, feeling the sun on your back and not being, you know, encased behind bars. And so the, the landscaping thing was sort of a thematic thing for his character. You know, and then as I got closer to the end, I'm like, how do these two guys take on all these, you know, these bikers, these these criminals that are well armed and ruthless? And it just kind of clicked. I was like, well, you know, Ike's a landscape. He got a lot of fertilizer floating around. And so that sort of became the way I had to, I, I ended it. Um, but, uh, you know, it it was one of those things that sort of grew, you know, no pun intended, organically out mm -hmm. of the story. Um, and, and then once it did, I was like, well, let's go all in, you know, now it's like, you know, let's, 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 let's ramp it up to 11. Uh, and, you know, I have a friend who, um, who read the original, uh, draft and it was pretty much the same ending and, um, his name is PJ Vernon. He's a great writer in his own right. Uh, and he said, you know, I read that ending, man. He's like, I felt like I hear ride of the Valkyries playing at the end. And I was like, that's, that's the. That's the feeling I wanted to engender. But yeah, I don't know if Ike hadn't have been a landscaper if I would come up with it. It probably would have been a very different ending. Hmm. Uh, but it, it, I think it all worked. I think it all worked out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was perfect. And and my other question, um, my other spoiler question is because the ending is a bit open ended for Ike. Um, mm -hmm. I wondered if you did that because you want to bring him back into another story. Um, not as a not as a main character, but I have this sort of idea of, of creating my own, uh, you know, uh, S.A. Cosby shared universe. Mm -hmm. And so <laughs> I would love for him to show up in a subsequent book uh, as, a, as just a cameo. Um, you know, I, I like the idea of, of characters in, in, from different books interacting with each other. Uh, but also, in, in a more serious note, I, I left it open-ended for Ike because I wanted to give the reader the impression that, you know, this is not a finite journey for him, you know, uh, from when we meet him in the beginning to the person he is at the end. And, you know, he still has more work to do. He still has things to learn, but he's trying. And I think that's the, the ultimate, other than the theme of, you know, love is love and acceptance and, you know, don't wait to uh, repair, you know, uh, broken relationships. I think the theme is that, you know, as long as you're trying to get better, you're doing you're doing the work that's necessary. And so that's why I sort of wanted to leave it open-ended for him. He's better as a person. I think he's a better person in the end of the book than he is in the beginning, but he still has more work to do, but he wants to do it. And I think that ultimately redeems him as a character. Mm. Yeah, what an, what an excellent novel you have written. Uh, thank you for that. 
Thank you so much.